Welcome to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S. and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And a pleasant hello to you once again, friends, as we welcome you inside the Now Appalachia podcast heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network as we continue to profile the outstanding authors from Appalachia and how their works and connections to the region influence and impact those creative works. I'm your host, Elliot Parker. It's great to have you with us. I'm delighted to have as our guest on this episode of Now Appalachia, Broadleaf Writers Association founder and executive director, Zachary Steele, who is also an author himself. And we're going to be talking to him not only about the Broadleaf Writers Association, but more importantly about his new book, It's called The Weight of Ashes. And as we mentioned, he is the president of the Broadleaf Writers Association. He's the founder and executive director, but he's also the author of the book Anointed, The Passion of Timmy Christ, CEO, and also of the book Flutter, An Epic of Mass Distraction. He has been featured by National Public Radio, NPR, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Publishers Weekly, Baby Got Books, and Shelf Awareness. And he was also nominated for the Sidewise Award for Alternative Fiction, and you can find out more about him from his website, which we'll have him mention later on in the program, ZacharySteels.com. So, Zach, welcome. Hello to you. Welcome to the program. So glad to have you on as a part of the program, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Elliot. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Very happy to have this conversation with you. Glad to have you with us, and I'm so excited to talk to you about Broadleaf and uh, about uh, your novel, but I wanted to ask you first, we'll start talking about the novel first, and I, I was reading some interviews that you gave about the book, and I wanted to ask you about your favorite line. You mentioned in one interview that I read, you had a favorite line from the book, and I will read that and then have you explain to us why you think that's your favorite line, and um, it, you said that this line was your favorite. The good thing about knowing someone so long was that you learned to see more than they gave. Why is that your favorite line of everything that you penned in your book? I think it probably just stems from, you know, personal experience as the years have gone by with, you know, getting to know people because the the whole line of first impressions can be deceiving. And I think a lot of that has to do with um, everybody generally wants to put on their best face when, when you first meet them and as you become more comfortable, certainly in relationships, uh, whether that's friendship or romantic, the more you get to know them, the more they let their guard down, the more you see the person as they truly are when they're not trying to impress or trying to be their best self. Um, and you begin to find either what their best self really is or what their worst self really is. So, um, so yeah, that, I think that's why that line always stuck with me. And I know that idea and that line connects so strongly to what we see in the book, both not only the characters that you have created for this particular novel, but more importantly, the circumstances that you put them in. And so we 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 find out uh, in your book that the, the basic plot or structure of what's going on here, uh, your book is set in Hogan, Georgia during the 1980s. And uh, we have a character, 13 years old, named Mark Murphy, whose life is really in turmoil. Um, he's got an absentee father. Uh, there's an accident that occurs when um, the death of his big brother, uh, Mitch Murphy, occurs. Uh, we later learn, which we'll talk about in just a minute, we later learn that um, uh, 
his relative, his cousin Gordon, is involved in, in that accident. But um, tell us a little bit about uh, Mark and, and, and him as a character, both kind of before the accident happens that, that, that kills his brother and kind of what happens to him after. Sort of where is he uh, before and, and what happens to him and how does he uh, cope with this tragedy uh, moving forward in the story? I know that it, it it can be hard to do this, but, you know, trying to remember what it was like to be 13 um, and and being an individual that didn't yet have an identity. You know, you're still you're really just beginning to get to a point where personal interests and, and beliefs and everything are beginning to be formed. And, and Mark in specific, he lives a very simple life and his identity is wrapped around his relationship to his older brother. Um, as you mentioned, absentee father who left when they were very young and, and Mitch kind of stepped in. Mitch is, Mitch is a Southern boy, but he's a good kid, you know, and, and he's, he's, he's does a really wonderful job of helping to raise Mark and to teach him lessons and, um, and try to leave a, a positive mark on him and help him grow to be, you know, something bigger and better. And so, um, Mark goes from right in the beginning of the book when when his his brother dies in this accident, he goes from having this identity wrapped around his brother to suddenly having to understand a, a world with without Mitch in it. And, um, you know, grief is a difficult thing. It's it's one of the few things that we as human beings have in common um, and how we deal with it. Um, it, it varies from person to person. And when you're 13 and you're trying to contemplate this vital piece of your world that is suddenly gone, um, Mark's path to that is basically to get stuck in denial because he doesn't know how to move forward. Yeah, very well said. And we mentioned Gordon a moment ago. He is involved in the accident. How is he involved in the accident? What was his role in setting up the circumstances or the scenario in which uh, Mark's brother was killed. I'm leaving a very spoilery part out of it. I'll just say that he was driving the car and he was at fault for um, going through a stop sign at 60 miles an hour and T-boning a 66 Buick while driving a 280Z. Um, not one of those kind of battles you're going to win. I would know because I was actually in the 280Z when I was a kid um, and it, it did not end up well. I mean, granted, there was no fatality, but um, but yeah, so he is at fault for causing the accident that kills Mitch. And you talked about grief, and I certainly think grief is one of the themes that, that works through this story. And we see Mark kind of working through uh, all of these stages of grief. You know, there's sort of the, the, the shock and the denial and then the anger. But one thing that really propels Mark uh, in the book, and we kind of follow this thread as we move through the novel, is he really wants revenge. And once, once he gets past the, the belief and sadness, he gets into the anger and kind of the revenge stage of grief. Um, he, he wants revenge. He wants to get revenge uh, uh, on Gordon, sort of change the circumstances or try to change the, the circumstances going forward for, for their lives. Um, and he finds one way to do it. He sort of comes across uh, one way to do it. Um, what, what is that way and how does he do it and who gets sort of brought along for the journey as he tries to seek out his revenge? Yeah, I um, having grown up in rural areas in in the eighties, um, I uh, I was always a fan of 
urban folklore, you know, the local folklore, you know, those stories of ghosts and hauntings and witches and all this kind of stuff that, of course, you couldn't verify because we didn't have Google and things like that. Um, so it was just, it was fun to believe in those kind of things. And there's one in this particular story that exists, um, and, and she is known as the witch on Spook Hill. And she is believed among her powers to have the ability to bring the, the loved ones who have departed back, you know, your power of resurrection. And um, he has so latched onto this idea um, for various reasons that spell out through the book that um, he has recruited his three best friends to help him carry his brother's ashes to the witch on Spook Hill to have him returned. Very good. Very good. And, and we won't spoil it too much uh, in mm -hmm. terms of, in terms of what happens there, but you know, I like how you set up the fact that there's obstacles here. This is not going to be uh, an easy journey for Mark. And, and we meet other characters along the way. Uh, his mother, uh, Mark's mother, you know, starts drinking heavily uh, after uh, his brother is killed. Uh, she has a new boyfriend, a character named Officer John. There's the police force. Uh, there's Gordon still sort of lurking in the background. So this, this is not going to be an easy journey. Uh, for Mark to sort of set forward uh, and get this revenge or get what he thinks uh, is going to be revenge. And that leads me to my next question about style and kind of how you constructed these chapters. I noticed there was a lot of really short chapters. A lot of the chapters ended on almost a little bit of a cliffhanger, um, but it reminded me almost like we were watching a, a television series or, or a, a movie of some sort and that every chapter was almost a scene leading from one end to the next. And I just wanted to ask you if, was that something you set out to do when you were drafting the story? Did you did you feel like that was the style that was going to work best? Or is that something that just as you were putting the novel together, you realized, oh, you know, it's just kind of happening that way. How did you set up the structure for that to where, um, you know, every chapter almost seems like a, a TV episode or a, an episode of a Netflix series or something like that? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm glad to hear that because I, I am a, a very visual writer. And so it's not that I'm I'm writing a story because, yay, someday it's going to be a movie. It's just I, I want to be able to really see it. And I was, so I want the reader to have a very visual experience all the way down to sensory input and everything like that. But um, when I do chapters, I, I approach them from, um, you know, the, the, the story arc um, of a beginning, middle, end approach. So, you know, for every, every chapter for me has to have those points. So it almost naturally leads to a sort of cliffhanger end to every chapter, but um, the, the in, entire intent there is, I mean, as a reader, you get to the end of the chapter and you want something to draw you forward. And, and so I'm very much uh, mindful of the flow of the story and, and what pulls the reader along. And so that's why I love to end chapters in, in a, a cliffhanger fashion. Zachary Steele is our guest today on this episode of Now Appalachia. He's the author of the new book, The Weight of Ashes. And he's also the president and founder of the Broadleaf Writers Association and also serves as its executive director. And, and Zach, we'll come back to the uh, book in just a minute. But I did want to take a few minutes to ask you a little bit about Broadleaf Writers Association uh, and get some information. Have you talked to us a little bit about what that is, how it got started, how you became involved in it? So start us off with what Broadleaf um, Writers Association is and then tell us a little bit about what its goals are and how you got involved and how you became executive director. Sure. 
Um, well, broadly, from a missionary standpoint, is is an, a nonprofit organization that exists to um, help foster and build a community of writers that um, inspire, uplift, and, and assist writers on their journey toward publication. Um, beyond that, the the skill of writing is is a vital tool that we have to continue to work at. And and you know, though you may be pursuing publication in in fiction or nonfiction, the more you learn about writing, the better your writing in life becomes. So therefore, you help yourself professionally. You help yourself articulate better. You um, you just become a more well rounded human. Um, I st I started Broadleaf in 2015 with a a wonderful founding board of directors of five people who were very enthusiastic and passionate as well. Um, but I wanted my own writing community and I had experienced it at, at, at other writing conferences, but one in particular that um, really made me very close to moving out of the state of Georgia just to go be a part of that writing community. Uh, instead, I took uh, a much longer route of looking into how to start my own nonprofit and and how to um, structure it so that it would be most beneficial to writers. And so we started with uh, an annual conference. That was the very first thing we did before evolving into more programming and membership and membership benefits and um, little pockets of communities that are forming critique groups and things like that. Um, I, I still have very huge dreams for Broadleaf, and, and I wanted to be able to serve as many writers as it possibly can and, and to help to give to those writers what I was given by other writers. And that is, you know, um, knowledge, inspiration, and an opportunity to, to grow and become the best writer I can be. So is anyone allowed to join Broadleaf? Are there geographical limitations to membership? Do you have to be kind of from Appalachia or the South, or can you be from anywhere? What are some of the uh, the parameters of membership if anyone would be interested in joining? Well, interesting thing is that my answer is different in 2022 than it was in 2019. And, and that is because uh, the pandemic has brought us so much more in the way of virtual programming and not just the everyday programming, but um, some more membership initiatives that we're trying to, you know, gatherings that we're trying to do virtually. And, um, and also our annual conference is going to a hybrid thing. So to answer your question, um, there is no limitation, you know, Ida, age, gender, background, what you write, what style you write in, where you live, it doesn't really matter to me, you know, be a part of the Broadleaf Writers family, and you can still attend programs, or you can, you can drive or fly yourself in to come to our annual conference or other conferences that we have. Um, I just, I, I believe that we're in an era of time where um, there, there shouldn't be, you know, neighborhood limitations on or even regional limitations on uh, who is involved in this organization. And having been the director, executive director now of Broadleaf and, and founding the organization, can you speak to something you mentioned a moment ago, speak a little more to this idea of a writing community and why writers should seek that and why they should be active participants uh, in some kind of a writing community, even if it's one within their own state or their own community, or maybe if they have to extend and look outside their state to a neighboring state. What is the, the benefit to the writer and the value in joining uh, a writing community and kind of making that connection? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, writing, as you know, writing is an exercise in isolation. You know, you you exist in a very solitary space. You are in your head creating worlds and characters and stories um, that that live with you well beyond 
the actual typing of words. You know, um, most of what you do as a writer is strictly just you and your head. And, and so I, I always preach to writers that it's vital, not just important, but it is vital that you, you have to get your butt in the seat to write, but you also have to get your butt out of the seat to go be a part of a community, go get involved. And um, that can be as easy as going to, um, pro, you know, any kind of writing or even book related program at, a, at your local bookstore. Um, it can be coming to programs like we offer or, or definitely, definitely going to a conference. Um, I, I don't, I, there's no way to really articulate to people who have not yet gone to a conference what that experience is like when you first walk in and you see this, this room, however large the group is of people who are your people. They understand your dreams. They understand your successes and your failures. You know, they share that that sense of isolation um, that that you experience when you're writing. And so it's it's vital for writers to get out and do something that is very hard for writers, and that's go talk to other people. Um, you know, to go have conversations, to make connections. I, I remember my first conference. 21 years ago and um the connections that i made i made a very very invaluable connection with um, a published writer who has become not just a mentor but a very very dear friend and um that's something that wouldn't have happened if i had never gone and my life would be a, a little bit less if not a lot less because of it so how do you balance being the executive director of broadleaf and everything that's going on there with your writing and reading life how do you structure that how do you balance that uh, is it a matter of just carving up the day into several sections or one day you focus on this, the next day you focus on something else? How do you keep everything sort of moving forward? Yeah, I, I think it's a constant juggling act and it's not something that I can actually structure because there are days when, you know, six, eight, ten hours are filled up with conversations and writing that I have to do for Broadleaf and, you know, restructuring the website. It's just sometimes it is just so much that there's no time or energy for anything else. And then there are other days where it's calm and quiet. So, I mean, I have tried before to work my writing time into an early slot in the morning, and then I can get to broadly. But then that means that all that communication that people tend to do early in the day, because they know their afternoons are going to be busy, you know, I'm, I'm behind on it, and maybe I don't hear from them for another day or two. So, um, I kind of just go into every single day uh, and and see what I've got and where I can put things, and and I just have to make I just have to make it work because I mean I have to write I have to read and I have to do broadleaf work. Yeah, it all has to be done and it all deserves and needs the same amount of time and attention. I understand that exactly, exactly, totally. Zachary Steele is our guest here on Now Appalachia. He is the director and founder of the Broadleaf Writers Group and also the author of the book we're talking about today as well, The Weight of Ashes. And so, Zach, we'll go back to the book for just a second. I wanted to read another quote that I really loved because it really gets to the spirit, I think, of, of your book. Uh, and this is the character Dunk, who I really liked. Um, and, and, and he says, he had this line that I, I loved. He says, we aren't kids anymore. We're hormonal superheroes fighting the villainy of a sex crazed world and uh, not to spoil too much about that, but, but that's just so, such a statement that a character like Dunk would make. But one of the things I loved about your book is, it, it, and you mentioned this earlier, it reminds you of uh, you were trying to get inside the mind and remember what it was like to be a 13 year old. And I love that part of the story. I loved kind of imagining myself what I was like then. And, and there's a real spirit of wanting to root for 
for these kids, you know, we're, we're wanting to root for Mark, you know, even though he's going seeking revenge and he's maybe not going for it the right way or always for the right reasons, you know, we, we want them to succeed. And we remember that, that optimism and, and that, that idea that, um, you know, anything is possible when you were that age and you could do great things and could do anything if you just put your mind to it. Um, is that something that, and I noticed all the characters in their own ways, all of the younger characters had that sort of spirit in them. Is that something that sort of formed and got established as you kept introducing new characters into the story? Or did you realize, hey, I've got this pocket of young people and I'm going to make sure they all kind of have these characteristics imbued in them? How did all that, that, that spirit of, of, of that 13-year-old idealism sort of come to be? I would I would love to sit here and tell you that, well, Elliot, the first draft, I wrote this out and these kids just sang and I knew what I had. I had this wonderful, vibrant thing. Um, their personalities were definitely there. Um, I owe a lot to my publisher at the Story Plant, Lou Aronica, for um, helping me focus on making them kids because I had the journey. I had their emotions. I had you know, their motivations and things like that. But he wanted more moments where they were just kids. And Dunk was the easiest way to do it because Dunk Dunk is, is my humor. And um, I'm a big advocate of humor in any type of writing. And in, especially in a story like this, where this is, a, it is an emotional drag, this entire story. Um, it is certainly the most emotionally difficult thing I've ever written. And, you know, my, my girlfriend, Jess, came up with this wonderful promotion of giving out tissues for every book that I signed. And it was, you know, tongue in cheek, but also, hey, you know, I mean, you're, you're going to have to deal with some things here. Um, and Dunk gave me the opportunity, especially as those moments of just being a kid, where he could talk about games or talk about shows or talk about how difficult it was to be a teenage, you know, kid in, in a world that it, at that time, time with MTV's rise and everything like sex was everywhere. And now it's, now it's really everywhere, but um, yeah. So, but, um, but it, it was, it was, I think I was, I was part of the way there and, and Lou really helped me bring out the remainder of that element of, of child moments. And I know that when you get to the end of this book, one of the first thoughts that I had, uh, in addition to how much I loved it, was that I felt like this is something that could appeal, this book and everything we've been talking about and the themes and the characters could appeal to a younger audience as well as uh, an adult audience. And I, I know that um, you have some strong feelings about sort of young adult literature and young adult readers and writers. Um, can you share some of those with us, you know, as you think about, I don't know if you set out to, to write this exclusively you know, for young adults more so than maybe adults, but I know you feel pretty strongly about young adult literature readers and writers and kind of the responsibility that us older folks have uh, towards that next generation. Can you share some of that with us and, and how some of those ideas kind of worked its way uh, into your book? Sure. I, um, I was writing this as young adult and um, had expected that that was the direction that it was going to go and that, that it would end up. Um, but a funny thing happens when there's somebody pushing a contract across the table to you that you can sign where they're going to actually pay you real money for the, for your book. If they say, this is literary fiction, you go, okay, this is literary fiction. Um, but at the same time, you know, even, even they recognized that, you know, there, there's a very large market for this book for teens. Um, and, and I think because being a teenager, having to deal with issues, uh, I mean, forget for a moment, the issues of just being a teen, but when you're dealing with issues of loss and grief, you, you don't have the, the processing ability yet to really cope 
with that void that's suddenly there. And what do I do now? How do I deal with this? What, how am I supposed to act? Um, and then you're going through these cycles and, and, you know, I went through my own and didn't even come out of it until an adult, until I wrote this book. And that's a, that's an, another story, um, we can talk about, but, um, but I, uh, I, I, I hope that it becomes a book that if a parent reads it and their child or somebody's child is going through this, they, they, they're, they're able to say, here, read this because you might, you might find something to connect to. Um, and, and I hope so. I hope that there are teens that would read this book um, that were dealing with this kind of emotional weight that could get something out of Mark's journey and, and learn with him as he goes through these stages. Cause I put him through all of them in a very short period of time, which is not how it works, but a very short period of time for him to come out on the other side, not whole cause you're never whole again. Um, you're, you're something different. And do you feel like, some of those reasons are why we see so many adults reading young adult fiction. I mean, I've heard some adults say, well, you know, my son or daughter's reading this in school or they're interested in this young adult series. I remember a few years ago, the maze runner, for example, I knew so many adults uh, that were reading the maze runner because it was being read in schools and there was a movie uh, made out of it. Uh, and James Dashner did a great, a great job. I read a couple of those myself, but that, that idea of, of, of adults can kind of see themselves at that age and, and can kind of remember uh, what it was like to be that age, but also see some of those same values that even dealing with a, a young adult population are still true today. It, it, you feel like that's a part of the reason that uh, uh, so many ad adults read young adult uh, literature? I mean, I think so. I, th I think, you know, one of the, the jobs a writer has is to, to write characters that, and, and stories that um, allow the reader to see themselves in that world. Um, they allow them to see, you know, if you're a, a young black child and you want to see strong black characters, you know, you want to see yourself in those pages. You know, if you're, if you're a young girl and you're looking for a strong female character to see yourself in, you're going to gravitate to those books. And I think as adults, we invariably look backward. We invariably try to remember what it was like to be a kid and, and to, I think, you know, wonder what we would what we would do with those days if we had known better kind of thing. And and so it's it's so easy to gravitate to the stories uh, uh, that are in the young adult market and even the middle grade beneath that market as an adult, because, you know, you want you want to be able to see yourself as a child again. You want to you want to be able to feel a little bit of that part of you that you may feel you've lost. So in our final moments with you today, Zach, if anyone wants to get in contact with you to uh, learn more about your writing, if they want to find out more about the Broadleaf Writers Association, um, where can they get in contact with you or how can they get in contact with you, first of all, and then where can they get copies of The Weight of Ashes? Um, my website is, as you mentioned earlier, ZacharySteel.com, and um, it it is uh, you know self managed. So I try to, in, in my spare time, I try to get to it as as often as I can. Um, Broadleaf Writers is just BroadleafWriters.com, or you can find Broadleaf Writers on Facebook, on Instagram, um, and on Twitter. And um, we try to stay as active as possible on those particular sites. Um, as far as the weight of ashes, it is available, um, may not be in your local store, but it is available to order through your local store. Um, it is available on Amazon um, and, um, and hopefully in your local library to check out. Um, it, is, it is very widely available. 
The title of the book is called The Weight of Ashes. Our guest today has been uh, writer Zachary Steele. He is the author of this book and also the president of the Broadleaf Writers Association. Uh, he's been featured in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, National Public Radio, Publishers Weekly, Shelf Awareness. He's been nominated for the Sidewise Award for Alternate Fiction and uh, a number of other honors as well. Uh, Zach, thanks so much for uh, being with us today. Congratulations on all the great work that you guys are doing, uh, you and your board with uh, Broadleaf, and uh, congratulations on this great new book. And I certainly hope uh, everyone will pick up a copy because it's a, a perfect read that is going to connect with so many readers, both young and old. And thanks so much for the conversation today. Thank you, Elliot. I appreciate the time. We want to take a moment as we finish up on this episode of Now Appalachia to say thanks and give a shout out to the executive producer of our podcast program and also the executive producer of all the podcasts that you hear on the network. Her name is Pam Stack. So Pam, thanks for all the great work that you do behind the scenes to make these podcasts possible. And we also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And that is going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.